Welcome back to Getting to the Bottom of It. I'm your host, Lizzie Jensen. Author, activist, and 2024 presidential candidate Marianne Williamson will be making her second appearance at GW on October 17th to talk about her long-shot presidential campaign. Williamson, a Democrat, has been touring across the country trying to rally support in her second presidential campaign, the last of which ended in January of 2020. This week, I will be sitting down with Marianne Williamson to discuss some of the most pressing issues facing GW students, such as financial aid, student debt, gun violence, and how they relate to her bid for the presidency. I will also be speaking with Williamson on her policy, strategy, and plans for college students, and gaining some insight to the roots of her campaign. Ms. Williamson, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. So, you are set to speak at GW on October 17th to share your vision for the future of America. You are also visiting several other college universities this month. What is the purpose behind these conversations, and how do you plan to connect to the GW community? Well, first of all, I'm running for president, and uh, there will be a 37% of our population will be the young people of America. So, obviously, young voters are important in a strictly electoral sense. But in a way, even more importantly, I want to talk to you because this is your future we're talking about. And I have been for months now talking at colleges and universities to kind of gauge the temperature um, to see whether or not there was any resonance between my message and young people when I, when I encounter them at colleges and universities. And I found that there definitely is, and I can see why. You're not 20th century people. You, you weren't even born there, most of you. <clears throat> and I meet many who simply don't understand, and I agree with you. Why should you live your lives at the effect of, at the effect of really bad economic ideas, soulless economic ideas that were nothing but a product of the late 20th century? And these economic perspectives severely limit your future possibilities. There is simultaneously among you, as there is among the youth of any generation, a yearning and an embrace of possibility. And we need to take our anger, our frustration, our cynicism, and turn it into healthy, urgent activism. And you and I together can create a real breakthrough, a political breakthrough. Now, <clears throat> I'm the only Democratic candidate running on an agenda of fundamental economic reform. So, unless somebody else steps in with a progressive vision and what a lot of people call a progressive vision today is not a progressive vision. It's the high side of neoliberal calling itself progressive because it takes little baby steps in the direction of ameliorating your stress. I don't want to just ameliorate your stress. I don't want you to have stress to whatever extent public policy affects that. I can't, I can't take all the stress out of your life, nor would that be my job as your president. But it would be my job as your president to remove stresses such as 
need for healthcare, college loans, and so forth. Um, I feel when I talk to young people, I feel seen. This campaign feels that this campaign is heard. And I hope that that's because you feel that I see and hear you. As a Foggy Bottom resident, Williamson recalls several instances in which she encounters and speaks with GW students at her local coffee shops. Williamson said that she understands the youth's struggle, and that is why her campaign is largely centered around student outreach and connecting with the young vote. So you've been quoted in saying, um, in the richest country in the world, it must become our highest priority for every American child to receive a world-class education. What would you <laughs> say constitutes a world-class education, and how will you aid students in accessing one? We have millions of children in the United States who go to schools where they don't even have the adequate resources to teach a child to read by the age of eight. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased, and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. <laughs> so let's start with the basics. We have teachers who are quitting the profession. Teachers who are saying, I didn't go into this work to do crowd control. And my training is in education. My training isn't in dealing with special needs children that create circumstances in the classroom that make it more difficult for others, and yet the school does not have the adequate resources for that special needs child. I did not go into this work, they say, to fear for my life. I did not go into this work to have <clears throat> some right-wing extremists telling me what I could and could not teach, or could I what I could or could not put into the library. We have people such as teachers who are having to carry the greatest burden of some of this craziness that's going on in this country these days. As a part of her education reform, Williamson has plans for the creation of a Department of Children and Youth that would aid every child in America in their early years of life that are considered most crucial in their development. We're spending our money on tax breaks <clears throat> for the very, very wealthy. We're spending our money on multi-billion dollar subsidies for corporations that are already making billions of dollars and will take that money that we subs that are their subsidies and just use it to create better conditions by which they might price gouge the American people. That's how much of a system of legalized bribery our government has become. And we need our government to be an entity that says, how are we going to set every child in America up in those first five years? That's why the traditional conversation about, about education at this point if you have a traumatized five-year-old, not to even mention a hungry five-year-old, we have the highest <clears throat> child poverty rate of any advanced democracy. Well, we have the highest poverty rate. What are we doing? What are we doing? And then really, then our only response to this is bigger prisons. This is how much fundamental course correction we need. And that's what my campaign represents. Not tweaking things here and tweaking it there. Which version of the status quo do you want? Fundamental course correction. We're going in the wrong direction.
We're headed for the iceberg. We have to turn the ship around. And along with Williamson's plans for children and youth education is her plan for higher education and student debt. Last election, Williamson ran on an educational policy platform focused on the spiritual and emotional well-being of each individual student. This year, as one of three Democratic candidates, Williamson has taken a policy-targeted approach, focusing still on the cultural and emotional experience of each child, but also on teachers and higher education. Um, GW is ranked number 51 in the list of most expensive universities in the U.S. provided by Prep Scholar. And approximately 80% of GW students receive financial aid through scholarships and grants, and 40% receive federal loans. What are your plans for interest on student loans and the expansion of Pell Grant and work-study programs? First of all, <clears throat> until the 1970s, we had tuition free college and tech schools in this country. They had University of California had a system, University of Texas, University of Florida. As I mentioned before, those college loan debts, college loans should never have existed. But I have to tell you, when I think of tuition free college and tech schools in the United States, I don't think of GW. You know, we're not going to, we're not going to, the government's not going to pay for you to go to GW or, or Dartmouth. I mean, sorry, that's not how it's going to happen. Um, we should have as robust a system as possible of allowing uh, allowing kids. It, you know, it's interesting. It's like right now I see public policy in the United States as kneecapping our younger generation. That's not the way you treat your children. You try to set your children up to succeed and then you hold them accountable. I'm a tough it's not like I got all people accountable, but you know, it's that old proverbial thing. You can't ask somebody to raise, you know, pull themselves up by the bootstraps if they don't have any boots. And so Biden just approved the forgiveness of over $9 billion in student debt. How will you ensure your plans in regard to student financial assistance fulfill his actions that have already gone underway? And how will you further enact actions such as this? You realize that's a drop in the bucket, right? <laughs> Nine billion compared to a debt of 1.5 trillion. So uh, there are those who argue that he could use the Higher Education Act and get this done. And there are also those who argue that if he had come in and said at the very beginning, all forgiven, that this would not have given his opponents the as, as easy a path to opposition. We're just gonna do it. And among other things, I'm going to make a moral argument to the people of the United States that this was a predatory, it was basically a predatory lending practice. And what do you mean by that? What are young people trying to do when they take out a loan to go to college, except try to self-actualize? How do you have a great America if people aren't, aren't able to spread their wings and soar and self-actualize? <clears throat> and if governments are instituted to secure the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That in today's language, that means the right to self-actualize. Getting a higher education is the way you expand your mind, expand your skills, expand your, your understanding, and thus expand your life circumstances. We should be supporting you in every way. And I want that to include that you would feel you had the bandwidth to be a great friend, a great spouse, a great partner, a great parent, a great citizen. We cannot be the country we need to be if everybody's stressed out all the time. 
with that, you bring up stress, which perfectly translates into my next question about campus <clears throat> on college campuses and gun violence. Um, so lots of young people say gun violence is high on their list of political concerns, especially on campus where Morgan State University and UNC Chapel Hill make for the most recently potent examples of gun violence at colleges. Here at GW, the Board of Trustees actually recently decided to arm some GWPD officers with handguns in response to growing concerns over student safety. Do you think that GW's response was appropriate, called for, and what are your policies <clears throat> on violence specifically at schools? The president should not weigh in on that policy, I can tell you that. Mm -hmm. That's the GW community. Gotcha. You know, one of the one of the things that's important about the presidency is, and that was really so horrifying about Donald Trump, there's some things the president is not supposed to weigh in on, hello? Uh, so that's number one, that's a GW community issue. When it comes to things such as uh, ban on assault weapons, high capacity magazines, universal uh, red flag laws, uh, boyfriend laws, loopholes, all those things. I am what any left-wing Democrat would be. But on those things, I have to tell you, none of it's going to happen if you don't give us a different house and a different Senate. So this is one of the things where, like I said, we're going to have to partner in this. We're going to have to do it all together. But that which we're going to have to do together has to do with more than gun laws. We will be a violent society until we choose to become a nonviolent society. And all of us need to make that choice. It used to be that the question was, is it the guns or is it the culture? And we've gotten to the point where it's time to recognize it's both. Twitter is a violent place. Our agricultural laws are violent. Our food laws are violent. Our environmental laws are violent. Our economic policies are violent. Our entire system has a mean-spiritedness and a brutality to it right now. And all of us need to take responsibility for the course correction. And all of us can, really, with every interaction on any given day. There have been so many times when we've seen horrible things happen, and I know I'm not the only person to ask myself, what happened in that kid's life? So, you know, Martin Luther King said, the desegregation of the American South is the externalization, the political externalization of the goal of the civil rights movement. He said, but the ultimate goal is the establishment of the beloved community. One of the things I want to establish is the Department of Children and Youth. Oh, I'm sorry. One of the things I want to establish is the Department of Peace. Many people don't realize that peace building is a real thing. That there are four factors when, which when present indicate that there will be a higher level of peace and a lower incidence of violence. We have to claim, you have to claim the George Washington uh, GW community for peace. You have to, in your own lives, during our conversation, Williams explained that if elected, she'd only want to be in office for a single term, 
Williamson, who is 71 years old, said that the President of the United States should be a younger representative of all Americans, rather than someone in the baby boomer generation or in her age group. I only think I should be there for one term. What I want to do is a kind of, it's kind of like a chiropractic adjustment. Get the heart back in the government and remind some people that they have a, must have a political spine here. And then my view of things is that while I'm doing that for four years, you are incubating your own readiness for leadership. And you'll be ready to take it from there in four years. Now, I might not have gotten that tax cut repealed, but even if I don't, I will have made the conversation about it so foundational that you guys will be ready to as soon as you can. Does that make sense? Yes, that does. It's a continuum. Yes. It's a continuum. Yes. So it's something that we're that we're doing together ideationally, even when I leave the scene. Because it's you know, the stream is there. That's how mm -hmm. I say. Yes. And then just to clarify, so you said that if you were to be elected, you would only want to serve. <clears throat> You know, you're not supposed to say that because <laughs> you're not supposed to say that because it makes you people treat you like a lame duck. But then on the other hand, even if you got a second term, then you'd be the lame duck. Uh, and it would be your job, the American people, to make sure that things were accomplished. The reason I say that, and maybe, you know, people say it's politically not what you should say, but I think somehow in this agreement that I'm trying to make with the people of the United States, I think you should know that that's what's in my head. Mm -hmm. Because I plan to go in there and behave in ways you wouldn't behave if you were even thinking of trying to get reelected. <clears throat> uh, Franklin Roosevelt said, it has become clear to me we must become fairly radical for a generation. Now to me, the Declaration of Independence is radical. To me, what's radical is the $50 trillion theft from the middle class to a tiny group of people over the last 50 years. And the other reason I say it is because I want you guys to get ready. I want you guys to get ready. Mm -hmm. We've got four years. And then over to you. I'm a baby boomer. No boomer should be elected president in 2028. That's just not the way it should work. We've, we've got to balance out the fact that a generation has held on for too long. I want you to know that I get that. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that I get that. Mm -hmm. And it's not even because I would necessarily think I was too old to do the job. It's more than that. It's those of you who are younger have a different filter. I'm not saying it's even a better filter than mine. Every generation, there's no better or worse generation. But mine is not a filter who would be able to best know how to handle things in 2028. Williamson said that she believes her generation is not representative of the U.S. population because younger generations will largely have to deal with the repercussions of present-day policy and the effects of climate change. That's why she wants to act as a quote-unquote transitional president, paving the way for young generations to take office. However, according to 538, Williamson is not polling nationally as she is not considered a major candidate. Meanwhile, Biden still commands the lead in the Democratic primary. So I've heard from a lot of students and prospective voters that they love your ideas, but they're worried about your history in government office and political office. 
Um, as a presidential candidate that has not previously held office, do you feel that this has changed the way you're run, you run your campaign? And what do you have to say to voters who are wary about that, that fact? Ralph Nader had never served in political office. Nobody ever said that about him. They didn't say it about Ross Perot. I haven't even heard them saying it about Cornell West or Robert Kennedy Jr. That's number one. Number two, there's something about serving in political office today that means that you're very qualified in perpetuating the system as it is. The main uh, requirement for fundamental uh, reform at this time, I believe, is a leader who is there to disrupt that system. I don't want to th be a bomb thrower. That's not what this is about. But it is about knowing that we have to think outside the box because the box is toxic. Anything inside that box is toxic. So a political establishment, which is itself a huge corporate interest, by the way, would have us think that the only people qualified are the people who have had careers ensconced in the car that drove us into this ditch. And the only the only people that we should think of as qualified to drive us out of the ditch are the people who drove us into the ditch. And I'll tell you something, there's um, there's evidence for what I'm saying here right now. Where are they? Why am I having to do this? You know, there are many people in Congress, these, these qualified politicians, many people in Congress, in state houses, governors, who agree with me who have the same kinds of uh, political attitudes that I have. Why aren't they here? They're here because they're lined up in obeisance to what the DNC says. So let's say one of them comes in over the next three, three weeks. So somebody didn't even have the courage to take on the DNC, we're supposed to think they're gonna have the courage to take on the insurance companies, or they're gonna have the courage to take on big pharma or big oil or the military industrial complex. I think being part of that machine, that's a machine that acquiesces to corporate dominance. Now, I also think it's relevant that when you look at what the founders had to say about this, to be qualified to be president, you have to have been born here, you have to have lived here for 14 years, and you have to be 35 or older. I think it's very interesting that the founders did not say you have to have served in office because they were leaving it to every generation to decide for itself what they think the requirement is to face best face the challenges of a particular time. Now, people would say, well, Donald Trump, you know, uh, wasn't, you know, had never served in office. Well, the problem with Donald Trump was not that he hadn't served in office. The problem with Donald Trump is that he has no respect for American democracy. It's his character that was the problem not whether or not he had served in office. For that matter, he was a very effective president. He was just effective in all the wrong ways. Gotcha. So how will you, as president, disrupt this sort of what you described as complacency to corporate domination? What will you do specifically that will disrupt that expectation? I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it by the very fact that I'm running. I'm not telling truth to power. I'm telling truth to the people. I'm saying to the people the things that everybody's already thinking anyway. I'm not saying anything everybody, everybody I talk to, I say, I'm, you know, I'm not saying anything you don't already know, but there's almost like a conspiracy of silence. We're not supposed to say what it is we all, all know. But with the levers of power given to me by the executive branch, uh, you know, being leader of the executive branch of the government, I would have the power to appoint leaders of agencies, which have been captured by corporate interests. 
I would have the power of the bully pulpit. I would lay it down as real and as honestly as a president as I am trying to do as a candidate. And if there's really no way to any other way to get it done, then within legal means, I could use executive orders. How do you feel your experience as an author and an activist equipped you to act in this way, to be able to break the status quo, to be able to run? What skills specifically has that given you? What my career has given me is a front row seat to chaos and what it takes to both endure and transform it. If you want to make your life transform, you've got to be honest enough to say, where do I, where do I not stand on the principles that I say I believe in? As a country, if we're going to have a future that we want, we're going to have to say, where do we, where do we not stand on all these democratic principles we say we believe in? In other words, we have to go deeper than transactional politics. And that is what my career has given me. My career has given me the ability to forge another conversation, an alternative to the status quo, and the ability to talk to large groups of people in a way that can enroll and inspire. That's not nothing in today's world. Williamson claims that her knowledge and experience as an activist and author has exposed her to both the experiences of American citizens and the inner workings of government decision-making. Williamson says she wants to use that experience to provide a new perspective in office. So what is your message to GW students preparing for the 2024 election? Why should students vote for you? Why should students get out and vote in the first place? I stay away from the word should. Yes. Not saying students should vote for me. I am requesting of students that you look at my agenda, look at my platform, and look at my life if you're looking at it, except you know, not through the lens of smear media. My life, my work, and my agenda offer you an alternative to the economic and social status quo. It's up to you to decide whether that aligns with your own heart and your own desires for the future. And if it does, I hope you'll help me. And if it doesn't, hey, this is democracy. And thank you for letting me part of, be part of your analysis. I want you to have health care so you don't even have to think about it. I want you to have tuition-free college and tech school so you don't even have to think about it. I want the cancellation of the college loan debt so you don't even have to think about it. I want to have a guaranteed living wage waiting for you on the other side of your college experience so you don't even have to think about it. I want to soften the housing market for you so you don't even have to think about it. And I want to help create a more peaceful world so you don't have to think about it. And I also want to create a situation where you won't have to worry about whether the planet is habitable. Whole swaths of continents habitable in a few decades because we ramped down fossil fuel extraction. I also want to get rid of the uh, war on drugs but and, and create a world-class network of recovery options for those of you for whom that might be a, a meaningful thing. In, but I wanna say something to you about this. I don't want you to have those things so you can just then be a slacker and you know sit, be a couch potato. I don't think that's what you want. But I do want you to know this. The things that I just said represent a lot of investment in you and your country would expect great things from you in return.
And that is to be a great, to fly as high as you possibly can. With that education, with that really privilege that those things would afford you, I want you to be the best friend, the best lover, the best parent, the best mate, the best citizen, the best artist, the best healer, the best business person. I want you to be, I, I want to create the context for your own fullest potential because that's how to make the country great. So I want you to know there's a quid pro quo there. I'm not working to get these things for you just because I like you, <laughs> you know, or just because, you know, I'm certainly not to pander to you, but I want you to know there's a, there's an exchange there. I want your country to invest in you so that you will feel moved to invest in your country. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Williamson, for speaking with me today. I look forward to listening to you speak at GW on October 17th at 7 p.m. in Jack Morton Auditorium. That's all we have for this episode. Be sure to tune in next week.